The ways that we work have changed since the pandemic. Many people work remotely now, and a lot of others have been replaced by machines, leaving the rest of us to wonder how long our labor will be safe from automation's reign. When I think about the automation coming, I see the paradise that I hope for. You know, after people say, hey, yeah, we need to preserve this connective labor. Let's have two-hour appointments. Let's, you know, that kind of thing. But in a chat GPT universe, I see a future where humans are designated as feelers. Feelers, the sentient ones, otherwise subjected to data collection and automated everything. It's clear to me that one version of what is left for human beings is the emotional terrain. Engineers know this already. They tell me humans are good at motivating other humans. That's what humans are good for. I think that's a very thin account, actually, of what humans do to other humans. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today, working conditions. My first guest says automation is not just doing away with cashier jobs. Therapists, doctors, and teachers are seeing their professions change too. And the human impact is powerful. Allison Pugh is a professor of sociology at the University of Virginia and the author of The Tumbleweed Society, Working and Caring in an Age of Insecurity. Allison, in your book, The Tumbleweed Society, You argued that as people stopped expecting as much from their workplace, they started expecting more from home. Not just expecting more, but they sort of took out their frustrations at home. What do you mean? Yeah, exactly, Sarah. It ended up being a study of like, what do we owe each other in an era in which your employer doesn't owe you much? What what does commitment mean? Much of what I found... I came to call the one-way honor system. And what do you mean by that? I mean that they felt like they owed their employer 100%. I give 100%, 150%, 200% of myself at work. But their expectations of the employer were very low. They would excuse or absolve the employer for letting them go, for, you know, oh, they're, you know, they're just trying to make it in a globalized world. I heard a lot of like making excuses for uh, whatever the employer did. And then I would ask them about their home lives and they were not nearly so generous with any kind of disruption or conflict in the home. They had given up on their expectations at work because of this kind of culture of job insecurity that they had been schooled in. But at home was where they invested all of their expectations. And so when there were disruptions, their very high expectations were dashed. And it was very kind of very intense. I wasn't surprised. I would also feel intense about, you know, home conflicts, divorce, uh, disruption, estrangement. Those are, that is a place where many of us feel deep feelings. But I was surprised to have have them work so hard on feeling less about the workplace. So what do you see happening now? You know, from hundreds of thousands of tech workers being laid off in Silicon Valley and elsewhere to mm-hmm. restaurant workers being cajoled back into the workplace. What do you think we're in the midst of right now? Yeah, there's enormous upheaval happening right now. Now, people, economists will tell you that the U.S. job market is known for this upheaval. They try and get us not to worry about that. Millions are lost and millions are gained, so don't worry, kind of, is the message, perhaps. But the thing that is really important that's coming and that isn't coming increasingly is automation, Um, Automation has actually been the primary vector of job insecurity for many decades. But right now, of course, with the AI advances, we see white collar work targeted really like the prospects are extraordinary and quite scary 
for the, the disappearance of white collar work. Now, what I've been doing lately for my next book has been thinking about a particular kind of work, work that many people thought would never be automated. The kind of people-to-people work that involves, you know, kind of it's service work and it's people connecting to each other in order to make things happen. Like what? You know, teaching is a really good example. Also therapy is the, perhaps therapy is the most iconic example. Primary care doctors, you know, anywhere where the other person really has to know you as part of their job. That kind of work actually underlies a lot of different occupations. I find myself doing this work all the time. For instance, when I'm advising my grad students, uh, you know, I really have to know who they are to know how to give them good advice. You know, coaches, up and down the class ladder, there's a lots of different uh, people, you know, home healthcare aides, many people do this work. And along comes chat GPT. <laughs> And ChatGPT is actually not the first case, but there's automation happening in this sphere. And I would now call this work, this connective labor, I would now call it under threat. And what's your greatest, what's your greatest sense of this work, this people-to-people work that seemed irreplaceable is now under threat? There's many examples and people who do this work are nodding their head right now. The, the primary threat to it right now is actually the influx of data um, demands, data analytics, data collection. So this is the, the primary care physician who has to enter in all this data while they're trying to look you in the eye and ask you about your diabetes care. <laughs> but actually right. they have to upload and, and respond to their electron, the electronic health record. This is the nurse answering more than up to, I think, a thousand alarms while, while the nurse is trying to, you know, attend to the patient in the hospital. Right. This is the teacher who um, has to think about, you know, kind of um, standardized testing while at the same time trying to, and, and you know, trying to... Um, see the student in front of her and how that person learns best. This is, um, you know, even as, even as scary perhaps as, you know, this is the therapy bot um, that is, um, you know, a machine that is offering you kind of canned um, advice that is, taking in some of your data and sending it back to you, taking some of your statements and sending it back to you so you feel seen, but it's not by a human being. So you're not just talking about being replaced by automation, but being overwhelmed and depleted and depressed by it. Right. Because I want people to notice it and care about it and protect it. So often, you know, administrators or employers will put in data collection requirements, you know, they're not doing it to be bad people, you know, they're doing it to get more information so that, that, you know, they can, you know, kind of put resources in better places or, you know, for instance, I spoke to somebody who uh, was doing intake at a hospital and she was being asked to, you know, give someone a questionnaire, was supposed to take her 15 minutes and she was like, I'm not going to rush people through this. This questionnaire is like about suicidality, about very serious and stressful mental health questions. And she's like, I am not going to rush them through this. And com was complaining to me about kind of the dictates of her employer regarding the data that they were asking her to collect rather than treating the individual as, you know, having a, having a kind of humane conversation about their tr struggles. There's a reason, but the reasons are hampering the ability of these frontline workers to do what they need to do to see the other. The cost of this data collection and automation and the cost of, the cost of losing all this connective labor is that we lose our connection to each other. And 
it actually has broader impact on our community and our ability to connect, not just with family or friends, not just with the tight network of people who already care about you, but these kind of more mundane social interactions that together make the threads of our community. I totally hear and see what you are saying. And you're not responsible for coming up with a solution. But have you reflected on something you like to see us do differently? Sure. But when I think about the automation coming, I so I guess I have kind of, I see three futures. And one is the paradise that I hope for, you know, after people say, hey, yeah, we need to, we need to preserve this connective labor. Let's have two hour appointments. Let's, you know, that kind of thing. But in a chat GPT universe, I see a future where humans are designated as feelers. And that's a, that's kind of the best of the worst cases um, that I, that I see as possible. What do you mean humans are designated as feelers? You know, if ChatGPT can, if a bot can produce a lot of cognitive work, uh, if it can pass the MCAT, as it has been shown to do, if it can write laws, which it has been shown to do, you know, it's doing a lot of white collar work that is making people wonder what is left for human beings. It's clear to me that one version of what is left for human beings is the emotional terrain. Engineers know this already. They tell me humans are good at motivating other humans. That's what humans are good for. I think that's a very thin account, actually, of what humans do to other humans. (laughs) I do too. (laughs) (laughs) But at least they know that much. Since they are the ones designing this tech, that's the best of the worst case future that they are aiming at, where human emotion is what humans invoke and create in each other. Well, you know, it's in the... In the history of America, you know, we've gone from, you know, felling our own trees and making log cabins, right, and keeping the home Mm -hmm. fires burning, to going off to war and coming back to factories and office jobs. If now, with automation just running pell-mell at us in such a huge wave, what might you suggest to us that we do to, to, to better our condition before it hits us? Or finishes hitting us. One one solution, obviously, is unplugging. Right. There's a kind of individual answer about how to find meaning in your own life, especially after the pandemic, that has to center connections to other people. There's actually a lot of research that shows how much uh, even casual interactions at like your local cafe with the barista has direct impact on psychological well-being. I get that. You know, the self-checkout, the everyday decisions we make for efficiency are actually bleeding the meaning out of our lives. We should choose, always choose, to talk to each other at every corner of our everyday life. Alison Pugh is a professor of sociology at the University of Virginia. She's the author of The Tumbleweed Society, Working and Caring in an Age of Insecurity. In India, one million men leave home each year for the Arabian Gulf, where they work in unskilled jobs in search of better lives. Andrea Wright is an associate professor of anthropology at William & Mary, She's also director of the Asian and Middle Eastern Studies there. She says these men are often so saddled with debt from the immigration process that their journey's hardly worth it. Her book is Between Dreams and Ghosts, Indian Migration and Middle Eastern Oil. Andrea, for a long time, jobs in Arab countries have attracted workers from India to immigrate there for work. Do they find that once they get there, The work usually meets their expectations? The men with whom I work migrate 
as unskilled laborers. So this is people who work um, carrying heavy loads and doing a lot of manual labor. And, you know, people have different expectations, of course, of what it will be like. Um, many hope that they'll make a lot of money and be able to support their families. And, and many do make quite a bit more than they would be able to in India. So for example, um, most of the men with whom I work who are going to work as unskilled laborers come from rural areas of India where people maybe make 2 to $3 a day as casual laborers. And in contrast, in the Gulf, they might make six times that much money if they're working in a country of the Arabian Peninsula. And so men who work for um, good companies, often it meets that expectation. Although Sometimes they're surprised by how long the days are or that overtime is a requirement in their contract and um, really hard to go. Often people go on two-year contracts and they leave their families and they are saving all their monies and sending it back home to their um, fathers or brothers. And that's in the best case scenario. Sometimes workers go and there's it doesn't work out as well. So when I went in 2010, I spent time with a group of workers that were had been abandoned by their employer. They had been hired to help do construction work, but the company owner had run into financial problems and fled the country, fearing um, being imprisoned for debt. And so when he left, he'd taken their passports with them because at the time passports were held by employers and these men had never been paid for the work that they'd done. And so they had spent two years working, had never been paid, and they were stuck living in like a dorm-like building that didn't have electricity or running water. And because their employer had provided food for them, they didn't have any food. And so they were dependent on men living in neighboring camps to help, you know, for them to eat and things like that. And so there's experiences like that that I think don't meet workers' expectations. Which Gulf states are we talking about where most of this migrant Indian labor is taking place? I'm looking at Bahrain, uh, the Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, Qatar, Kuwait, Oman, and the oil-producing countries that are on the Persian Gulf or in the Arabian Peninsula. The conditions of workers came up recently around the World Cup that happened in Qatar. There was many workers who died in the building of the construction in the stadiums, and in part it's because companies regulate themselves and construction is dangerous. And so the same workers who go to build stadiums in Qatar are also building oil infrastructure and maintaining it and also building apartment buildings and things like that. What is the pipeline for these workers? How do they tend to hear there are these great jobs that pay them fantastic wages compared to what they're used to? And where do they go to start their migration? In my research, I followed men as they moved from their villages in rural India to cities like Mumbai, where there's recruiting agents who work as middlemen between oil companies that want to hire workers and Indians who are looking for jobs. Many workers come through a sub-agent, which are people who work for recruiting agents that go to rural areas and find people to bring to interviews um, to look for jobs. So there's a system in place, and this is regulated by the Indian government. The system as it exists today was originally structured in the 1800s to regulate indentured labor moving out of India. So after slavery was banned in the British colonies, they needed another way of staffing plantations. And so indentured labor became one of the sources, and a lot of indentured labor moved from the Indian subcontinent in China. But in India, the people were worried about, are people moving freely or are they consenting to their conditions or are we just recreating slavery? So they created a system to regulate emigration and indentured labor. And that system continued into the 1900s, even after it became illegal to migrate from India as an indentured labor and um, was kind of revitalized in the earlier 1900s to um, help move workers to the oil projects in the Gulf. And so we see recruiting agents working to regulate indentured labor and then continuing to move workers today to oil projects. Do you think the Indian government sees this pipeline of poorest Indians migrating to the Gulf states as a kind of pressure valve release for jobs in India? Probably about a million men migrate annually. Uh, at least with the government officials who I spent time with, they would often talk about not wanting 
people to think badly of Indians abroad. So they wanted to make sure that people were going for good jobs and that they wouldn't end up begging on the street. You know, unlike Indians who go to the United States who are often highly skilled and highly educated, it's a different type of migration. And I think it um, produces some anxieties. In your book, Between Dreams and Ghosts, Indian Migration and Middle Eastern Oil, what are the dreams you're referring to and what are the ghosts? Many men, they had, you know, dreams of living in a city or buying the products they see on TV or Nike shoes or um, fancy, shiny shirts. So some of the dreams are like material dreams. Some of the dreams are about fulfilling one's family's obligations. So, for example, in India, a good son or a good brother or a good father helps provide dowry, which are gifts given from a bride's family to a groom's family at marriage. And so ideally, a woman, when she's getting married, will bring these gifts or this, you know, money, gold, and, you know, a good brother or a good father will help provide it. And so if you don't have extra income because you're very poor, you could um, dream of being able to help your sister marry well and, you know, being a good brother or a good father. And so there's these, like, dreams that motivate men who are migrating, as well as, like, the ghosts I, I focus on a lot are actually ghost stories that men told me, often about um, the importance of remembering one's family and one's obligations, even after they've traveled abroad. So would you like a ghost story? I'd love it. Keep going. Okay. So, okay. so I was sitting with a group of men who were interviewing for a recruiting agent to send workers to a project in the United Arab Emirates. And while we're sitting there, a group of men walked in and they're wearing fancy shirts that are like made of shiny iridescent material and they have watches on and, you know, name brands, sports shoes and things. And immediately the men who I was sitting with began to gossip about these men. And they were like, well, they did not spend their money right in the Gulf. Clearly they'd worked in the Gulf before, but they'd spent their money buying luxury items and not helping their families. And, right. and they thought this was a bad thing. They said, well, let me tell you this story about... There once was a, a young man who lived in Mumbai, um, and he fell in love with a girl, and he thought, well, I'll go to the Gulf, and I'll um, work hard, and I'll get money, and we can get married and buy a house, and I can take care of my family. And So he went to the Gulf, and while he was there, he um, met another woman and got married and forgot about his girlfriend in India. And, you know, his wife was pregnant, and they returned home to India to visit for the holidays. And... While he was there, he went out dancing with his friends. And it, while he was out dancing with his friends, he ran into his old girlfriend. And they danced a little bit. And she said, oh, I'm very cold. And so she, um, so he gave her, her his jacket. And then she kind of disappeared into the crowd. So the next day, he went to her, her house to ask for the jacket back. And the girlfriend's uh, mother said, well, don't you know? She died. And he said, well, that can't be. I saw her yesterday. So the mother takes him to the gravesite, and there sitting on the tombstone is his jacket. And the man <gasps> is, um, dies a couple weeks later from a fever because you can't just, um, you know, throw off your obligations. And this is the consequence of that. Do you have criticism of the system, or do you think this simply is the way it is? There are jobs that go begging in the Gulf states. They've got a lot of money to spend on them, and it's working out for the Indian laborers. I do. And I'm finishing now a book called Tentatively Unruly Labor, which is a history of oil in the Arabian Sea. And it looks at the history of workers' movements and strikes, mostly from the 1940s through the 1960s in the Arabian Peninsula and Iran. And one of the things I find very interesting is that often when people talk about the contemporary labor system, they often kind of attribute it to the cultural practices of the Arabian Peninsula um, and kind of make it specific or unique to that area. And it's interesting because when one looks at the history of these labor strikes, it becomes very clear that both there's like a British imperialism and as well as oil company practices really work to shape a system in which workers have very few rights. So now workers are not allowed to form unions or they're not allowed to strike. It's so interesting. I remember when I was in college, right after college, a guy I knew at school was graduating from the engineering department at a very prestigious school and going to work in Saudi Arabia in the oil fields. 
and I was astounded that he was going to make lots of money. And he also described the strictures on keeping him and other Americans and other foreign laborers separate from Saudi society. No drinking, no women, no drugs, of course, and living in a kind of barracks far removed from everyone else. Does that strike a chord with you and your research? Oh, definitely. Although Saudi Arabia might be the most extreme in the segregation, but there's definitely, you know, we see enclaves of people by nationality. And there's a real racial hierarchies that exist or national hierarchies. So often, um, you know, people who work as the most skilled laborers come from North America and Western Europe. And then um, the least skilled laborers most often come from India and the Philippines. And not only do people live separately based on their um, nationality, but also based on their income levels and, you know, their jobs. And so there's a lot of isolation. Not fun, but lucrative. It can be. If, the, if you work for a good employer, it, it can be. Although, because most of the men come from these rural areas, the common sense of it is, is that, like, as an area gets more prosperous from migration, they move to the next area that's poorer in India to find workers who will go for the lowest wages possible. And many of the men that I worked with, for example, came from places like states like Uttar Pradesh or Bihar in India. And these are states that have like lower than average incomes. And many of the men came from family farms that had like less than an acre in size. And so they were in debt and then they borrowed a lot of money to navigate the immigration restrictions that with the government and to find a recruiting agent. And because you get recruiting agents can charge migrants a fees to facilitate their migration. So they end up borrowing lots of money and they borrow this money from um, money lenders who charge high rates. And so often they spend years just paying back those loans that they take out before they their family has some extra money. It reminds me a little bit of service in the U.S. military, where for many years people saw it as a chance to be less discriminated against, to, to be in a system where you're simply rewarded for your job and your behavior. Yes, yes. I think that is how people see it or hope ideally in the best situations see it. Andrea Wright, thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. Thank you very much. Andrea Wright is an associate professor of anthropology at William & Mary and director of Asian and Middle Eastern Studies. Her book is Between Dreams and Ghosts, Indian Migration and Middle Eastern Oil. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. In September of 1913, coal miners in Ludlow, Colorado, went on strike. The company's response, they kicked all the coal miners out of their company-owned homes, and the miners and their wives and children tried to survive the fierce winter in canvas tents. And then one day in April of 1914, Soldiers from the Colorado National Guard and the Colorado Fuel and Iron Company's private guards showed up with guns and even machine guns and massacred coal miners, along with women and children who were living in the tents. It was a turning point in labor history. That's Linda Linville. She's descended from people who survived the massacre. The people of Ludlow didn't directly benefit from their fight, All they really got was a company union, and many, like my grandfather, had no choice but to return to the coal mines after the massacre. But events there brought the exploitation of immigrant workers to national and even international attention. The tragic deaths of the women and children especially awakened Americans to the brutality and the lengths that the company would go to to prevent unionization. Many American workers have been going on strike and unionizing over the past two years. 
Linda believes the Ludlow Massacre provides a rallying point and a model of determination for workers' rights. Ludlow is a, a timely story in that many people don't really understand the purpose or the history of unions and how many of the laws that protect workers today were enacted because of the existence of unions and their members. It's dangerous to take those rights for granted or allow them to be chipped away because greed is still alive and well, and those hard-won rights can gradually slip away without vigilance. The more things change, the more they stay the same, and Ludlow has much to teach. Ludlow should also be remembered as an inspiring story of the importance of immigrants in the history of America and its progress. In their efforts to prevent unionization, the mining companies hired immigrants from many different countries who spoke different languages, and yet the different ethnicities found common ground as workers and banded together. Amber Montoya is Associate Dean of the Honors College and Professor of History at James Madison University. She's the editor of the book, Making an American Workforce, the Colorado Fuel and Iron Company's construction of a workforce during the Rockefeller years. And she says the Ludlow Massacre is important to understanding what's happening today. Fawn Amber, tell me about the Ludlow Massacre of 1914. This was part of the larger Colorado Coalfield War. What were those wars, and why do they call this a massacre? Sure. Um, so the Ludlow Massacre, which happened um, on April 20th of 1914, was a skirmish that had occurred between coal miners and the Colorado National Guard. The coal miners had gone on strike in September of 1913. Um, they, along with their families after going on strike, had been evicted from their company-owned homes, and then they were pushed out onto the plains of southern Colorado. The United Mine Workers provided them with tents, canvas tents, and then also with food to be able to survive through that winter. It was the, on a record, one of the coldest winters in the history of Colorado. Within maybe six weeks, the Colorado National Guard will be called out by the governor of the state at the time, Elias Ammons, and the money to pay for the Colorado National Guard is raised by what they call insurrection funds. And these were bonds um, that were bought by Denver businessmen. So the, the company at the time was owned by the Rockefeller family, the company where the miners are evicted from their homes is the Colorado Fuel and Iron Company. Who were these coal miners? Where were they from? So in the coal camps of southern Colorado, the coal miners are speaking anywhere from 19 to 20 different languages. You have people that are from northern New Mexico who might have migrated north um, with both the Santa Fe Trail and sheep herding then then be eventually became coal miners. You might have had individuals who were coming west from the south um, after the end of the Civil War, um, but you had immigrant populations from all over the world. You had Italians, Greeks, Slavs, um, so very multi-ethnic, multinational, um, working class individuals. And many of them had families? Many of them have families. The vast majority of them have families that had met them there and then lived in these company-owned homes um, in coal camps throughout southern Colorado. What were their working conditions like, and why had they decided to strike? Sure. They were working in very dangerous working conditions because of the lack of ventilation in some of the coal mines. There was a heavy amount of coal dust, which could easily lead to explosions. They weren't paid for their dead work, so when they were putting up um, scaffolding within the mines as they got further and further in, um, it took more and more time to stabilize the mines. They weren't paid for any of this. They were only paid for the coal that they brought out. 
um, and the coal that they brought out, the foreman of the company didn't always pay them based on what was defined as a ton. So the foreman might say, okay, there's 2,000 pounds of coal, but there's really a bunch of rock in there, so we're not going to pay you that full amount. Long, long work days, not a lot of access to water. Um, they could only buy at a company-owned store. And then they were paid in scrip. So it was company monies. It actually wasn't um, money that they could use outside of the confines of the coal company or of that specific coal camp. They could also only go to a company doctor. If they were injured on the work site, it was usually deemed as their fault. And there was no company insurance or any form of company support for individuals that were killed in the coal mines or who were disabled in the coal mines. Why do they call it the Ludlow Massacre? On the morning of, um, on April 20th of 1914, the Colorado National Guard and the striking miners and their families engage in a skirmish. Later that day, the Colorado National Guard set fire to the tent colony. Underneath the tents, the miners had built tent cellars. On the morning of April 21st, they discovered 11 children and two women suffocated in one of the tent cellars. There are some families where the entire family is killed. Um, one of them is the Costa family. Um, Cetalina dies in the tent cellar with her children, and then her husband, Charlie, is killed as well on that day. The massacre will then start off a, a 10-day war in southern Colorado, which will only end when President Woodrow Wilson calls out federal troops to stop the fighting. You know, I saw a picture of the tent colony the miners lived in, and the caption says, Ludlow, a canvas community of 900 souls, was riddled with machine guns shooting 400 bullets a minute. The tents were burned. It's just hard to imagine why somebody would have, knowing there were women and children there, or even just on the male miners themselves, have used machine guns, right? Yes. There is an um, armored machine gun. It's a vehicle that is put with the machine gun on top of it called the Death Special. It was also used in West Virginia as part of the um, coal mine wars there as well. Um, so they would drive, the National Guard would drive through the tent colony through thir- 1913, 1914 and shoot at the tents all through that winter. So it was a pattern of terrorism. It wasn't just about April 20th, these events. There had been fighting going on before that, and specifically targeting of these miners and their families. Public sentiment was with the miners. I read a headline in the Seattle Star, War in Colorado, Women and Babies Slaughtered. Yeah, there's actually a series of congressional hearings afterwards, and one of the survivors of the the tent seller, um, Mary Petrucci, will speak throughout the nation at the time talking about... um, her three of her children will actually die um, in the tent cellar. She's one of the only women that lives. Um, there's stories of um, her on the morning of April 21st crawling out of the tent cellar, just completely dazed and bewildered. And that's how they discover that there's more women and children that are dead in that cellar. Why would the Colorado National Guard do something so despicable, right? Why would an arm of the state government simply mow people down and burn them out of their homes? I don't have an answer. Um, I, I, I often don't think about it. I, I think more about um, what was gained, um, what are the sacrifices of these individuals. I think um, it's something that I, I, I can't um, understand. Um, for me, these were, these were working peoples. These were people that were contributing to the economy of the state of Colorado. They were contributing to the state of the nation. Um, Some of it is because they were um, immigrant communities, that they were non-white communities. Um, It was a a company that was owned by very, very wealthy people um, that was really absentee ownership. Um, And through the ideas of the time of the power of capitalism and ideas related to um, uh, uh, standards of civilization and who was defined as appropriate citizens, It's not the only event that's happening um, in the nation at the time. You'll also see other um, working class individuals um, where they will have unsafe working conditions. Um, I think the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire is a good example of unsafe working conditions hurting people. But it's also happening in West Virginia as well. It's not just an isolated incident. It's happening throughout the nation of working class uh, struggle um, and engagement with larger companies at the time. 
You've talked with a woman who is descended from people killed in the massacre, and she's been researching her family's stories about it. Tell me about her. Yeah, so in, I believe it was in 2014, we were in Pueblo, Colorado at an academic symposium, and we had an author talking about the massacre on this woman, Linda Linville, who was from California, um, raised her hand and asked specifically about the story of the Costa family. Charlie and Cetalina Costa are helping with the organizing. Cetalina is pregnant. Um, there's some um, question over whether she was full-term pregnant or nine months pregnant at the time of the massacre. They also have some smaller children at the time. But Cetalina is insistent on staying um, with her community. Linda asks the author, what do you think about what, what Victor Bazzanelli said about Cetalina Costa? And the author said, there is no evidence that said anything happened to Cetalina. She died in the tent cellar along with everyone else. And then Linda told us that the family story was is that the um, tent cellar was also a maternity chamber. And that when Cetalina went into the maternity chamber, it's believed that she actually gave birth to a child. And that the family story is, is that when they found Cetalina's body, there were bayonet wounds in her back. And when they turned her over, she was holding a baby in her arms. And then the author at the time discounted that. And many in the audience talked about the importance of family story and that the coroner had actually paid, was paid for by the Colorado National Guard and by the Colorado Fuel and Iron Company. So how do you believe a source that might not necessarily be trusted and giving some credit to family memory? When we wrote our book, Communities of Ludlow, Linda expressed that she had tried to write the family story, but had never, didn't have enough information for a full book. So I encouraged her just to write the story and that we would find a way to contribute it to our piece, um, which we were able to do. And I would say, I think of our book, Communities of Ludlow, it is one of the best pieces. And if, if anyone ever reads anything um, or about the Ludlow massacre, they should read more about the story of Cetalina Costa. And in many ways, this was a story that had disappeared from the official histories of the Ludlow Massacre, but because of the commemoration events in 2014 and because of Linda's work, it's been able to come back. Linda also um, had a gravestone that she had made for the family because there was no marker on the family grave in Trinidad, and she, over the years, has paid for that to make sure that they're remembered. And in that granite memorial that was erected by the United Mine Workers of America, there is a beautiful set of statues of a miner and his wife and a child, and the inscription is, in memory of the men, women, and children who lost their lives in freedom's cause in Ludlow, Colorado. Yeah, and I think one of the reasons that um, so much interest has come back to the Ludlow Massacre is in the early 2000s, someone actually came and desecrated the monument. They cut off the head um, of the man and the woman and then also the woman's arms. And so the United Mine Workers had to restore the statue. And this is one of the reasons um, historians um, and other scholars and people throughout the nation come together to make Ludlow a National Historic Landmark. But it was because of that desecration. It was devastating to the community. You are fifth-generation Colorado yourself. When did you first learn about the Ludlow Massacre? So Ludlow was one of my first field trips. My family lived in a small town called Honey, Colorado at the time. It was a K through 12 school. Um, and my teacher, her name was Mrs. Anderson. And so she took us to Ludlow in the third grade. Um, and then as I grew up, um, I was I always knew that my grandfather had been a coal miner and his father had been a coal miner and his father had been a coal miner. So the Montoyas for many, many generations since they moved to Colorado had been coal miners. Um, and the family story was that my great-grandfather, Don Asano Montoya, was a United Mine Workers organizer in Trinidad, which is about 10 to 15 miles away from the Ludlow Massacre site um, during the Ludlow Massacre. Um, in 2005, I went to a family reunion in Trinidad, and it was the same weekend as the Ludlow Massacre Memorial. And my great uncle, Vidal, or Monte Montoya, we were all meeting at his home um, the morning of our family reunion, and he wasn't there. And everyone asked where he was, but he had gone to Ludlow. And I remember that staying very much present in my mind, that for my great uncle, it was more important for him to be at Ludlow remembering the lost coal miners than it was to be at his family reunion. 
much of the many of the people um, in Southern Colorado, their uh, working class identities and the people that they've worked in the coal mines with and the history of coal in that region is integrally important to who they are. Um, and so that's always kind of stuck with me. Um, I take my children to Ludlow now. Um, I come back every year. I live in Virginia, but I go back every year for the Ludlow uh, Massacre Memorial. What lessons do you think are to be drawn from the Ludlow Massacre now? I think it's a story about immigration. How do we treat immigrant communities? Do we make sure that they have access to the same rights as others? Do we understand the work that they're doing and are respectful of the kind of work that we're doing? I think it's very much about the role of women um, in our communities. And are we honoring and respecting all of the complexities of what it means to, to care for people's households, but also to raise children? I think it's also about what are the sacrifices that have been made throughout our nation in order to have the rights that we have today, an eight-hour workday, uh, insurance, workman's compensation. I think about community, the importance of community and of communities telling their stories over time and scholars pausing to listen to them and scholars not always thinking that they're the experts on everything. I think I've learned more um, as a historian being in community with what I call the stewards of Ludlow. Um, there's a man by the name of Bob Butero who's um, organized the memorial for many, many years, and um, a man by the name of Mike Romero and a woman, Yolanda Romero, who have also been part of this. And I think when you when you drive through southern Colorado, there's, there's not a lot of things to see, um, but the people there are amazing and have worked really hard to preserve their legacies. There is this music um, that emerges around the Ludlow Massacre. And I think this was some of the most um, wonderful things that I had ever heard. And, and wonderful in that they, they told a story in a way that I, as a scholar, can, can never tell the story. Um, and there's a couple of songs. One is called Ludlow Field. It's by a musician by the name of Daniel Valdez, who um, was part of a group, a theater group called Teatro Campesino. Um, his brother is Luis Valdez, who is responsible for um, writing a play called Zoot Su, also the executive producer of the film La Bamba. Um, and Danielle um, had, uh, is also a director, composer, um, uh, actor, and he um, contributed to a song called Ludlow Field. He wrote the music for it. I'm sorry, the the composition for it. The, the lyrics were actually um, written in 1918 by the United Mine Workers president, Frank um, J. Hayes, and are recorded in the newspaper at the time. Um, but it's a beautiful poem that then became a song um, about um, the, the people that were there and the memory of the Ludlow Field. There is also an amazing YouTube video. I can't remember the name of it. I'll have to send it to you. Um, but at, that was sung in 2014 at the memorial about this woman, Mary Pachucci, who all of her children die at Ludlow. Um, and it's just this beautiful piece about the struggles that Mary went through just trying to get one of her sick children um, to the doctor while she was at the Ludlow massacre. Um, and so I think that is something that doesn't translate as well through written word, um, but there are these beautiful musical pieces. And then a man by the name of John McCutcheon in April 20th of 2014 at the Ludlow Massacre site actually recorded the Colorado Strike song, which was a song that was sung um, throughout the tent colonies of Southern Colorado. And so music was one of those things that unified the coal miners and unified the coal strikers. And so regardless of their language, they were able to come together through music. So let's play a piece. Um, this was sung by um, Tom Breeding in 2014 at the 100th anniversary of the Ludlow Massacre. And it's called A Song of Mary Petrucci at Ludlow. And Mary Petrucci is the woman who um, all of her children die at the Ludlow Massacre. And it really kind of encapsulated the pain um, and the heartache um, of what Mary had to fight for through 1913, 1914. It's heartbreaking, but it does give me a better picture of who Mary was. The soldiers came to Ramey on a morning so cold. Her husband gone to work to mine, Rockefeller's cold. Right through Mary's kitchen They searched from room to room Mary's children cried She said your father will be home soon 
He said, you know what we're here for, and you better not be slow. Mary had a good idea, but she pretended not to know. And Mary's hands were shaking. She took her husband's gun. She gave it to the soldiers, hoping they would just move on. Fawn Amber Montoya is Associate Dean of the Honors College and Professor of History at James Madison University. She's editor of the book, Making an American Workforce, the Colorado Fuel and Iron Company's Construction of a Workforce during the Rockefeller years. Six ten will leave this morning, but you can't board at this depot. You can't ride the train out of flood With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monica Nation the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Aviva Casto and Liliana Bukowski are our interns. Special thanks to Jenny Taylor for booking assistance. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening. The winter hills were bare. But a roof above your head's no good If your family's not safe there And all the wives and Ramey Knew those guards would come back again So Mary moved into the tent camp With her husband and children Where you think you're going? Where you going today? Is your husband he a member of the UMWA? The 610 will leave this morning. But you can't board at this depot. You can't ride the train out of Ludlow. You can't ride the train out of Ludlow. No, you can't ride the train.